0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Segment from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Ferrand from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May 24th. Today, the ups and downs of Cryptocurrency. Evolving American views on who is the victim in the Middle East, and talking to family about vaccines.
1: In the past year, people who've invested in cryptocurrency have seen their portfolios grow astronomically. The market is known for its volatility, but in the past year, the growth has been staggering.
0: Hamza Shaban is a business reporter for The Post. He's been covering cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Dogecoin, which have had a roller coaster a few days. And he talked to producer Emma Talkoff about the reasons for all that
1: volatility. So part of the, the crypto story is that prices can rise suddenly and they can rise for a while, but they can also crash suddenly. In the span of a minute or an hour, prices can crash. And that's exactly what we saw in the past few days, where Bitcoin, as well as many other tokens... Saw their prices plunge.
2: Do we know why it is that, you know, cryptocurrency was so profitable for a while and then also why that suddenly seemed to come to a halt in the last few days?
1: Experts who observe the market point to a confluence of factors. There's rarely ever like a a one kind of smoking gun reason why things are rising or falling. But in terms of the rise, it's uh, people staying at home. It's uh, some Americans having more money. It's this boredom. It's this lack of live entertainment in casinos. And also, there's been greater institutional adoption within the world of cryptocurrency, which is adding this prestige and this reputational factor that's also drawing people in and in the past few days when we saw the crash there's a series of negative headlines there's elon musk tweeting there's his performance on snl and there's also headlines out of china about this crackdown on cryptocurrency and there's also this degree of people just taking their profits and saying i've seen my portfolio grow let me just take some money off the table Very recently, with the Colonial Pipeline fiasco, the hackers behind it, allegedly, they were said to have taken $5 million as ransom in cryptocurrency. And that's renewed attention towards this topic of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies being used to facilitate crime. And that's been a longstanding criticism and a longstanding concern. And this episode brought more attention and more skepticism towards the market.
2: So cryptocurrency seems to be something where there's a ton of buzz and especially online, you know, you see people posting about it and people maybe kind of like bragging about how much money they've made. I'm wondering, like, is this actually profitable for most people? And like, are there some people that are really making a lot of money from this?
1: It's hard to say in aggregate who's winning and who's losing. But we know from anecdotes, we know from reporting, we know from people posting on online forums that a lot of people are making a lot of money. And we also know that many people are losing money. And it depends when you invested. So if you had put your money in years ago or have the resources to just walk away, it's much easier to weather sudden drops in the market. But for those who dove into the crypto craze just days ago, maybe with their life savings or retirement money, there's fear that, you know, did they get caught up in the frenzy without knowing the risks.
2: Okay, so I want to ask you something. This is one of those things where I feel like I've waited too long and I'm kind of afraid to ask about it. But can you explain to me what Dogecoin is and how it works? So, like, I know about Doge. He's like a cute Internet dog. And I know this is somehow related to Elon Musk, but I don't really understand how this is a currency and how it came to be.
1: Dogecoin was started in 2013 as a joke based off this humorous meme. And then it it took on a life of its own as this joke cryptocurrency. And in recent years and in recent months, it's gotten even more attention and excitement from people who actually believe in it as a currency and from people who are just getting caught up in the memes and they think it's funny. And they can also stand to make a lot of money if you just look at the price of Dogecoin in the past year. In in a story we did recently, we spoke to one investor who put money in early this year, and he saw his portfolio cross $1 million. And it's not worth that anymore because the price has fallen. But for him and for people like him who invested a bit earlier and had the nerve not to sell, they saw their holdings explode.
2: Then what happened? Why is it not worth that anymore?
1: So part of Doge's recent fall, market observers say, is this, this series of negative headlines and this like cascading effect of speculative trading where just as the momentum builds and people buy in, then when there's some event that triggers people to sell, there's this reverse cascade of people panicking and taking their money out and fleeing from the investment. And then there is also this episode with Elon Musk appearing on Saturday Night Live.
3: I keep telling you, it's a cryptocurrency. You can trade for conventional money. Oh, so it's a hustle. Yeah, it's a hustle. Why <laughs> didn't you say that, man? everybody.
1: And he made a couple of jokes about Dogecoin. And whether or not you agreed with him, it kind of triggered this, oh, no, I need to get out. Um, now, now's the time to get out.
2: It sounds like there's a lot of luck and chance involved with this, which I guess is true with any kind of investment. But I'm wondering, how are cryptocurrencies being regulated right now? And how does that differ from the way that like the traditional stock market is regulated?
1: There's a gray area and regulators are now putting forward proposals on who should regulate it. And then we'll get to other proposals, presumably about how it should be regulated. The primary concern you hear from government officials is this fear of manipulation and this fear of regular everyday investors not truly understanding the risks of cryptocurrency. And as you say, there's risk in any sort of investment. But with crypto, because it's a bit younger and it's so volatile, there's concern that people will stand to lose a lot of money and that it is this super risky investment without a long history of showing itself to be a safe investment for people.
2: So looking at just the last few days events, it seems like we're seeing, again, that cryptocurrency is super volatile. And now we're also seeing companies like Tesla, who used to sort of be into Bitcoin, saying they're no longer going to accept it. Do you see all these signs happening and think it could be kind of the beginning of the end? Like, are people starting to bail on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies?
1: In 2017, Bitcoin had this huge run up and then it had this multi-year uh, winter is what it's called, where prices stayed low for a long time and only recently has it recovered. And similar to then, if you talk to people who are true believers and long-term holders, they see this as just another roadblock that they can get past and that people just need to understand the risks and we can get through this. And there's more development, there's more innovation that's on the horizon. So I think if you, yeah, if you talk to those people, they say, you know, this is not the end. This is just another obstacle that we can overcome.
2: Yeah, it seems like there's a question about whether this is gonna be kind of ushering in a new age of currency and investment or whether this is just sort of a fun internet meme-based trend.
1: That's right. There's the saying, live by the sword, die by the sword. But now we're talking about attention and memes. So there's a huge question mark about cryptocurrency's future.
0: Hamza Shaban is a business reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. What is the current status of the conflict between Israel and Hamas right now?
3: A ceasefire was called last week after almost two weeks of fighting. So a tenuous peace basically has been called.
0: Cleve Woodson is a White House reporter for The Post.
3: President Biden was one of the people that sort of asked Bibi Netanyahu to call the ceasefire and saying basically that the military objectives have been accomplished or you guys have been fighting for long enough.
2: Folks,
4: I've just spoken with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Earlier today, I spoke with President al Sisi of Egypt. Minister Prime Minister Netanyahu informed me that Israel has agreed to a mutual, unconditional ceasefire.
3: And their argument throughout you know, throughout all of the fighting has been that they're working behind the scenes to effect a ceasefire, you know, stop the bloodshed basically as quickly as possible.
0: So as we've reached this point of a pause in this ceasefire, it does seem like there is clearly a political shift in how u s politicians and especially Democrats have been talking about this conflict and been thinking about who is at fault here. Can you talk a little bit about this shift and why we're seeing it?
3: I think there's been a larger reframing over the last half decade about these Sort of David and Goliath battles with racial undertones. Increasing numbers of politicians have seen what happens when a racial minority in America is systematically discriminated against. And many of them are trying to say that they're trying to work to stop that. And so it's difficult to sort of have that sea change, to to adopt that worldview, right, and to apply it to America, but not apply it to similar situations or what people see as similar situations in other parts of the world. One of the things that we wrote about was the Black Lives Matter movement and the thought that the systemic racism, the injustices that black people experience in the United States, for a lot of people, those injustices are cognates to what they see the Palestinian people facing. In Israel or as a result of Israel, there's this there's this thinking that the struggle is similar, that that it's a David and Goliath battle in which people are systematically dehumanized and that more people have over time been saying, look, we have to empathize more with the Palestinian people.
0: So what are the ways in which we have seen activists and politicians in the U.S. drawing these comparisons between the experiences of Palestinians right now and the Black Lives Matter movement?
3: Some of the politicians that we talked to, like um, Representative Jamal Bowman, for example, he said, I've been beat by police. I've had these kind of in- interactions with police officers that are damaging, that are harmful. And I see the same thing happening over in the Middle East. And you have folks like Corey Bush, who was a Black Lives Matter activist, who said, you know, you're seeing that the United States government is funding a brutal and militarized government that's basically beating up on a minority race. To the representative from Missouri, Ms. Cori Bush. That harassment, that extortion, that brutalization by a heavily armed militarized presence in our community, that's what we fund when our government sends our tax dollars to the Israeli military. St. Louis sent me here to save lives. So we, that means we oppose our money going to fund militarized policing, occupation and systems of violent oppression and trauma. We are anti-war, we are anti-occupation, and we are anti-apartheid, period. And so you just have folks saying this, not just in quiet conversation, but on the House floor, saying that the United States has to more effectively stand up for Palestinians.
4: So to what
0: extent is this actually new, though? Because it does seem like there has been a long history of solidarity between Black activist movements and Palestinian activist movements. And so is this really something different?
3: If you talk to the founders of Black Lives Matter, what they will say is that they, they don't see themselves as doing anything new. They say, look, Malcolm X did this. You know, Angela Davis did this. The people that they see as their forebears in this civil rights movement in America, have for decades linked sort of Palestinian solidarity with their movement and their action. One of the people that I spoke with was Melina Abdullah. She's the co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter. Um, she was really there with the organization from the very beginning. And one of the things that she and I talked about was really a history lesson of the context of where Black Lives Matter sees itself in the greater civil rights struggle
0: we understand that the liberation of black people in the United States is tied to the liberation of black people all over the world and tied to um, the liberation of oppressed people all over the world. And so standing in solidarity with uh, the Palestinian people is
1: something that's
0: been part of our work as Black Lives Matter for Almost as long as we've been an organization.
3: What is different is how it is perceived by the rest of America. You know, in front of the White House is Black Lives Matter plaza you know the president has kneeled in solidarity with protesters writ large and so because you have this sort of mainstream acceptance or this mainstream recognition that these BLM protesters have a point you know then when they say well look at the plight of Palestinians look at what's going on over here in the Middle East have you thought about it this way then people listen
0: And how does that affect the thread that more centrist Democrats have to weave? Because it's not like the entirety of the Democratic Party is saying we don't side with Israel anymore. It's more complicated than that.
3: Yeah, it's definitely more nuanced. Democrats like Joe Biden, for example, have come up as defenders of Israel. That is part of Joe Biden's coming of age, part of his legacy. But now it's extremely nuanced where folks are saying, look, we have to defend Israel, but we, we can't defend Israel if it's committing atrocities, if it's doing things that do not gel with our concept of what is right and what is wrong, what is moral. I think another aspect of it is that Israel is in a position of strength. Israel is just a, a stronger place militarily. And so the question is that defense hits different when you are in a stronger place militarily and when you have more power, the question is whether or not they're they're wielding that power appropriately, especially when you're looking at that power being wielded by and large against people of color. Biden is meeting with George Floyd's family tomorrow. He's full throatedly embracing, you know, many of the aims that BLM protesters were out protesting in this in American streets for for more than a year. And it just seemed difficult for him to say you know i think you guys are, are right about this we have to fix this and all of that stuff but then when they point to an international conflict in which he can hold significant sway you know oh that's a different story or or, or oh that's a different thing like there's a there's a conflict there
0: but then is there a risk here as well by drawing these sweeping comparisons between uh systemic racism in in the US and what's happening in the Israel-Palestine conflict? I mean, it, these are two very complicated situations that have centuries of history leading up to them and is is there a risk in in kind of making them seem to be the same thing?
3: There's definitely Multiple risks. One of the things that we wrote about was when BLM began taking a stronger stance on Palestinian rights, some of its funders, some of its very early funders, kind of said, Look, we're not going to give you money. Like, we're not, we we support what you stand for, but we're not going to fund people who are, you know, standing up for uh, something that will destabilize or have a negative impact on Israel. The other aspect of it is Hamas has been designated as a terrorist group that is firing rockets into Israel. Israel and what advocates for Israel will say is that drawing that direct link between the fight against systemic racism and a quasi political conflict in Israel is just fundamentally misleading. It's it's pulling at the heartstrings of people who want to do good and using them to basically defend Hamas.
0: So what lessons do you think Palestinian activists are learning from the Black Lives Matter movement that they are going to start using going forward?
3: One of the lessons I think that's there is what I call legitimization by association. The Black Lives Matter movement in America was such a potent force that happened over a relatively short time if you're looking at the history of our country. And Organizations across the world, not just in um, Israel, not just in Palestine, um, but ha- have have sought to um, legitimize themselves, and you know, or to frame their struggles in relation to this really worldwide movement that seeks to, you know, protect minorities against violence by the state. And so, I think that's one of the things that that's just not really going to change. We saw Bernie Sanders, you know, put out a statement that said Palestinian lives matter. And and just that association just lends a certain amount of credence to any, to any argument that people make, or it, at least it makes people think, maybe I should consider this in a different framework. The fact that framing it this way from a, a, a Black Lives Matter way um, can help kind of shift the paradigm is fascinating.
0: Cleve Woodson is a White House reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Sadie Robinson.
1: Now, one
0: more thing. Over 160 million Americans have gotten at least one shot of the coronavirus vaccine. But of course, there are still Americans who don't want to get vaccinated at all. I am kind of dealing with this issue where my father, who lives in Alabama and I live in North Carolina, he has two kids that are under 11 years old. And he is staunchly against getting the vaccine. That is Jordan Marie Smith. She's a producer with Post Reports. And she recently spoke to the Post's advice columnist.
4: I'm Carolyn Hacks, and I write an advice column for The Washington Post. Carolyn and Jordan Marie had a conversation about
0: how to talk to any close family member or friend about getting a vaccine. He's equated it, vaccine passports, kind of equating it to the yellow star in the Nazi
4: era. Well, f- first, you have my sympathy. That's that's really hard uh, when somebody makes a Holocaust parallel, you know that they're pretty deep into some misinformation and misconceptions, and that just makes it so much more difficult. This isn't somebody who's saying, well, you know, it's it's so new, I'm a little bit nervous. But I think the approach needs to be the same. The only way I think you can reach somebody who has come to a very different viewpoint is to recognize that they came to that position through what their experience has been with the medical community, what their experience has been with the scientific community, what their experience has been with information and how they've filtered their sources and how they feel about these things. And the only way to communicate with somebody who is coming from such a different place is to try to see where they are. And I think that starts always with questions. I think it's our impulse when we think we're right, or in this case, no, you're right. The first impulse is to start talking and to just say what you know and to assume that that's going to carry the day. And I think what you instead you have to do is ask questions to find out where their questions are, where their fears are, where their experience has brought them. And then you can get to... I hope, some sort of understanding which can get you to the kind of information that might actually be persuasive. Have you seen an uptick in people who are
0: submitting questions for your advice column about, you know, how they can talk to resistant or hesitant family members?
4: I am getting a lot of those questions, yes, and they're very similar in structure in that it's somebody who is vaccinated and ready to go to do the things that are available to somebody who is vaccinated, but running across somebody who is not and therefore Um, providing an obstacle of some sort. You know, sometimes it's it's somebody within the family, so they can't all do something together. Sometimes it's a friend, and so a bunch of them want to go out, but there's somebody who's refusing to get vaccinated, and they're asking, you know, can we leave this friend behind? Is this person safe for us to be with? How do we talk to this person? Or sometimes even I've talked to this person, and the stuff coming out of her mouth is so awful, I don't want to be her friend anymore. And so, of course, it's also changing the way people see each other. And I think the the most wrenching one that I got was a, a couple who are divorced and, and co-parenting a child. And one of them is adamantly opposed to the vaccine and the other one doesn't know what to do about that because, of course, their child is going to be at risk, is going to have limited access to things. And so it's really difficult. And of course, it might just end up in a courtroom, which is not ideal. So yeah, this is coming up often. It's putting people in a really bad position. And so it's very tempting to just stay away from somebody who is the source of that frustration. But I really think that the more we can maintain our ties to people, even when we disagree with them vehemently, I think the better we will emerge from all of this.
0: Carolyn Hacks is an advice columnist for The Post. This piece was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. As we move into a world where some people are vaccinated and some people aren't, there are a lot of complicated social questions coming up. So we're going to come back to Carolyn Hacks to talk about those awkward situations, stuff like dating as a vaccinated person, or navigating office life again, or dealing with social anxiety as we all head back out into the world. If you have some of these questions, we would love to pose them to Carolyn. Submit a voice memo asking your question and send it to postreports at washpost.com. And you might be on our show. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernofsky. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.